invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to our text today from Daniel chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. Again with verse 8, though we're going to be focusing our attention upon verses 9 through 18. Verse 8 says, But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head and my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great, and the tree grew and was strong and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou... O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Though King Nebuchadnezzar was likely not a true believer in Jehovah God alone, nevertheless, the Lord God gave to Nebuchadnezzar 
a dream that revealed God's great power over him and over his kingdom, making it very clear to King Nebuchadnezzar what the Lord was going to do to him uh, as a result of his own sinful pride and arrogance, as a result of his pride in refusing to receive God alone as Savior and as Lord, in refusing to repent of all of his idolatry and all of his sins, and in refusing to own the Lord, not his own gods, but the Lord God alone as the only true God and living God. And though this dream revealed that God and all that that God would cast Nebuchadnezzar from his throne and would lead him to insanity uh, to behave and act like a cow in the field. It had no lasting effect upon him, though God revealed this dream to him. Uh, The next day or soon thereafter, it it appears that he did not even remember the dream or or account the dream of as of any particular significance because there was no change uh, in his heart. There was no change in his life at all. He continued down the same path even though that dream had been given to him. He was not truly repentant in, in heart or in life. The dream with its terrible affliction of insanity was indeed realized Uh, later, about a year later, uh, because Nebuchadnezzar did not remember, did not truly remember with faith and obedience the dream that God had given to him. He did not repent of his wicked ways. Though God warned him in advance, he did not heed that warning. And may the Lord deliver us all from all such willful forgetfulness on our parts, that willful forgetfulness of what God has taught us through our experiences, through his word, through preaching and teaching, through meditation. May he teach us And may we learn to care. That we truly want to be different because of what we've experienced. Nebuchadnezzar did not evidence that. May we be different. The main points concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream are these. First of all, the king beheld the glory of the great tree. In Daniel 4 verses 9 through 12, Second, the king beheld the great tree cut down to the ground. In Daniel 4, verses 13 through 16. And thirdly, the king heard the purpose of the dream. In Daniel 4, verses 17 through 18. So the very first point. The king beheld the glory of this great tree. Verses 9 through 12. 
the king says, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of mine head in my bed. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. And the tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. Just quickly by way of review, Daniel chapter 4, as you'll recall from the sermon last Lord's Day, is a very unique chapter of the Bible in that it is the personal testimony of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, who did not listen to the warning that God gave to him due to his own stubbornness. King Nebuchadnezzar describes how the high God, that's what Nebuchadnezzar calls God, uh, the high God in, in chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 2, how the high God used miraculous means to humble him and to reveal to him and through him to reveal to all of the world at that time and in ages to come that our God rules over all. It's not men, no matter how powerful they may appear, it is God that rules over all. He rules over all rulers, he rules over all kingdoms. And he never ceases to govern, not even for a split second. He does not relinquish his control or his rule for even a moment. His government is everlasting, Nebuchadnezzar describes and declares in verses 1 through 3. Whereas his kingdom comes to an end, that is Nebuchadnezzar's, uh, and the rule and kingdom of every other ruler of this world comes to an end. God's never comes to an end. Toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, he was given a fearful dream, which he remembered and gives to us in this chapter, but which he could not interpret. You remember the first time in Daniel 2, he didn't remember the dream, and Daniel told him the dream as well as the interpretation. In this particular case, he does remember the dream, but does not know the interpretation of it, and Daniel comes to interpret that dream for him. He first called the wise men within Babylon in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, whose worldly wisdom failed them. They could not interpret the king's dream just as they could not do so uh, in Daniel 2. But at the last, we read, but at the last, Daniel came in before me. In Daniel 4.8, Daniel came in. 
And as Daniel comes in, the king confessed that Daniel was absolutely unique and he was extraordinary in comparison to all the other uh, so-called wise men within his kingdom because in Daniel dwelt the spirit of the holy God. This, again, uh, in Daniel 4, 8, uh, we noted that uh, the text says, the English text says, uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. We noted uh, last Lord's Day that this may also be translated, uh, in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And I think that uh, that probably is the better translation of this. Uh, the, the word that's used here uh, for God, uh, whether it's in Hebrew, Elohim, or whether it's in Aramaic, Elohim, uh, is still the word uh, that is used for the one true living God, even though it's in the plural. In Genesis 1.27 and throughout the, the scripture in the Old Testament, uh, Genesis 1.27, we read, So God, Elohim, the plural form, El, uh, El is the singular form, uh, Elohim is the plural form, So God, Elohim, created man in his, not there, in his own image, singular. And the verb created is not a plural, it is a singular, as if to take a singular noun. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, created he, singular, he, God, him, created man. Male and female, created he, singular, not plural, them. And so, again, we see that um, uh, the plural form of El is used in uh, the Old Testament scriptures to refer to the one true living God and as I said that's that's not an isolated instance that's throughout the Old Testament uh, and so when we read in Daniel here uh, uh, the spirit of the holy gods uh, I again would opt I believe to have it translated in whom is the spirit of the holy God and one other piece of Evidence, I think, is that the pagans did not describe their, their gods as being holy. That's a, a particular description of the God of the Bible, of Jehovah God, that he is a holy God. And so Nebuchadnezzar is ascribing to the one true living God. Uh, he's ascribing to him, whom he calls the high God, that he is holy. Um, and because that's what Daniel said of him. Uh, he's not necessarily uh, affirming uh, that he believes and trusts in only that God, but he is at least describing that it is that holy God that lives and abides and dwells in Daniel. So the king was willing to acknowledge uh, by way of a statement, his words, the holy God, but he was not willing to forsake all of his own gods in order to worship this holy God alone. That may be true of many who attend church worship services uh, throughout the country. 
many may be willing to affirm various truths about God, but not willing to receive and to submit to him alone as Lord and as Savior of one's life. And so again, what Nebuchadnezzar did can certainly be true of many uh, who appear in church services, so worship services all the time. We want to make sure that's not true of us. That's not true of any of us. That we're not simply mouthing, but we're actually living that he is the one true living God. He is holy. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar seems here to recognize that what makes Daniel so different from all the other wise men of Babylon is the presence of the, the spirit of the holy God that's in Daniel's life. Daniel's wisdom that he had in, in interpreting dreams uh, was not uh, mere knowledge that he had. He did have knowledge of the one true living God, but he was not merely a knowledgeable man. He was a wise man. He was a wise man. He had a heavenly wisdom about him, not a mere worldly wisdom as, as did these other wise men that Nebuchadnezzar called for, but he was truly a wise man. That is that the knowledge, the true knowledge that he had, he applied to his life. That's what makes one wise. Not merely having knowledge, but being able to apply that knowledge to the very circumstances in life that we face to apply the truth that we have in God's word to what we face every day. And are we thinking God's thoughts after him? Are we uh, behaving and speaking the way that God calls us to do in his holy word? That's a truly wise man. And Daniel was a wise man, in, certainly in that regard. Just like Solomon. You remember when in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, when Solomon becomes king, the Lord says, ask of me and I'll give it to you uh, in a vision. And Solomon uh, asked for wisdom uh, to be able to guide this great people of Israel, to be able to direct them, to be able to apply the knowledge of the Holy One to his rule in his own life as well as in the life of the kingdom. Uh, and God says, to Solomon because you didn't ask for riches, you didn't ask for power and might, uh, fame, fortune. You asked for wisdom. I'm giving you that wisdom. But I'm also giving you all these other things as well because with wisdom you'll know how to handle all these other things. And as long as he continued to seek the Lord, he was a very wise man. But again, we know from Solomon's life that he fell away from that wisdom and became very foolish and lived uh, for some period of time uh, in uh, a state of, of uh, sin uh, and in a state of immorality. And so the Lord uh, again brought Solomon back to himself as we see uh, in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes where he basically relates as a preacher uh, all that he experienced, all that he had learned as a result of having been taught by God during that falling away from him. And uh, that becomes a lesson to us all. The reason that dreams 
uh, were not a secret uh, to Daniel. Solomon says, or, or Nebuchadnezzar says, that uh, they're uh, that the dreams are not a secret to Daniel. They don't trouble him. The reason that is, is because the God of Daniel knows all things. The God of Daniel uh, uh, never learns anything. Uh, the God of Daniel has never learned anything uh, because he knows everything. All things actual, all things potential. He knows them not uh, by way of uh, discursive reasoning, working his way consecutively through uh, thoughts to get to a particular fact or truth, but he knows them instantaneously, immediately. All knowledge is immediately with God. And so because that's who God is, uh, certainly he can reveal to Daniel, his servant, uh, the nature of a dream or uh, the interpretation of a dream. It's no difficulty for God. It's no difficulty for God to give that information to whom he chooses as well. Well, in this dream, as we get to the dream itself, the king is shown a, a great tree in the earth. Uh, this is an extraordinary tree, for there is basically no tree like it in all of the earth. In fact, it's the only tree that is mentioned. This is not a tree uh, uh, that is larger than all the other trees, like in a forest or something that is just sticking up above. It's the only tree that's mentioned here in, in, in the earth. Um, and this is, uh, in scripture, uh, trees uh, are often used uh, to represent either a mighty ruler uh, or a mighty kingdom. For example, in Ezekiel 31, verses three through six, uh, there we find uh, a tree like a cedar of Lebanon that refers to the Assyrian king. And likewise, in that particular dream, or in that particular instance, we find that uh, the boughs of the tree uh, provided shelter uh, for the fowl and for the beasts of the field, uh, very similar to what we read here concerning this tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Likewise, we... Uh, know of the parable of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 13, the mustard seed, that becomes, it says, the greatest of herbs and, and uh, birds and fowl of the air uh, make their homes uh, in the branches of that tree. Uh, so again, the, there the kingdom of God is basically shown to begin very small, like a mustard seed, and to grow to such an extent that the the birds of the air find a place to lodge. Uh, speaking again of the kingdom of God, uh, that it starts small, it grows large, and the kings of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth come into the kingdom of God, into the visible church of Jesus Christ. That is, that is yet to be fully realized uh, in, in the millennium that is to come. But again, tree. Uh, representing either a king or a kingdom. And again, other instances that we could cite uh, in the scripture as well. Even the ancient poets of old used the tree, the, the tree as a symbol of a king or of a kingdom. So it wasn't something uh, only uh, limited to what scripture teaches, but as well taught in sec secular literature and history as well. 
And this may be why the king was fearful. Nebuchadnezzar was fearful in verse 5 uh, when he says, I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me because perhaps he realized this is a singular tree, a large tree, and uh, I know uh, from other literature because he was well-read. Um, he, was, he was not uh, an intellectual slouch at, at all. Uh, he was a military hero. He was an architectural uh, 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 known for his ar architecture, famous for that, as well as, again, uh, well-read. And so he perhaps realized this dream of this tree uh, is something very, very significant, and perhaps it even is significant about me. Uh, so there, there was fear. If, again, if there was nothing to be afraid of, if there was nothing uh, uh, about himself there, you, we're usually very fearful about what we you know, believe may happen to ourselves. This is a, perhaps a very um, reasonable way of understanding where his fear came from. That he understood enough that this had to do with him as being a king. The enormous, this enormous tree reaches into heaven, that is to the clouds in the sky above, the tree was beheld in all of the earth, we read. This represents the unique great greatness of Nebuchadnezzar in all of the earth at that time of his kingdom. There was none like him. Uh, all nations that uh, he faced were subdued under him. The leaves on the tree were green and were healthy. And there was much fruit that was produced by the tree in order to care for, provide for the fowl of the air and the beasts of the field. And there was shelter, uh, there was lodging, there was shelter, there was shade for all of, of the birds and, and the beasts, which represent, again, kings, rulers that came uh, under this great tree. There was shelter uh, for them uh, uh, in the branches that reached out from this tree. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was so great that, again, we know that many nations were brought under his dominion uh, to find provision and safety uh, from other enemies. This part of the dream, uh, I submit to you, was not what made Nebuchadnezzar f fearful. Uh, this uh, idea of, of how great uh, he was in his kingdom, that was not the fearful part. The fearful part uh, comes next in the second main point. The king beheld the great tree cut to the ground. Notice in verses 13 through 16, Daniel 4, 13 through 16. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and an holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches. Shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it, and the fowls from under his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass, and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him and let seven times pass over him. So in the judgment 
part of this dream, which we've just read. Nebuchadnezzar hears and he sees the cutting down of this tree by a watcher, a watcher in verse 13. Behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. This is not talking about uh, two watchers, but basically one watcher that is called also an holy one. Because in verse 14, it says, he, singular, cried aloud. That one watcher cried aloud. So this watcher uh, that we read of here, and then we read of watchers in the plural in verse 17, which we'll get to in a moment. It says, this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones. So here we find watcher and watchers. It's the only place in, in scripture that we actually find these words is in Daniel. And uh, so we ask the question, what is a watcher? What are watchers? Well, a watcher, uh, just to try in a brief way to describe what a watcher is, is, is one who continually watches. It's an angelic being who continually watches over the providential works of God in the universe, watching without slumber, watching without fatigue, watching without any need of rest, uh, all the time watching, and is not a mere observer by way of just observing, watching, but is also vigilant and watchful to carry out God's mighty works, God's mighty works, uh, God's power, uh, not uh, by way of their own inherent power, but by power given to them by Almighty God in ministering, basically two large categories, uh, in ministering to God's people as well as in judging God's enemies. Watchers are involved uh, in Daniel uh, uh, here, I submit to you in both ways, but we see again the angelic um, hosts being involved uh, likewise throughout scripture in preserving and caring for and carrying out God's plans toward his people as well as bringing judgment against God's enemies. For example, uh, in ministering to God's people, uh, we see uh, two angels in Genesis 19 that rescue Lot uh, out of Sodom and Gomorrah uh, before it being destroyed. In Daniel 6, we see that it was a, an angel that God sent to shut the mouth of the lions. Uh, we also see, um, interestingly, in Acts 12, uh, verse 7, that it was an angel that uh, set Peter free from prison. But it, at the same time, in verse 23 of the same chapter, Acts 7.23, it was an angel that was sent to judge Herod, who had spoken in boastful pride uh, before God, and God sent an angel to bring judgment immediately upon Herod. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 speaks of these angelic beings. It says, are they not all ministering spirits? Speaking of the elect angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? 
angelic beings. They're watchers. They're, they're vigilant. They're watching angels all of the time uh, without any, um, without any uh, need for rest. Uh, they are God's agents uh, to us for our good, for our benefit. Now, because this isn't often spoken of uh, in, uh, uh, in sermons and in churches, perhaps, again, uh, we uh, forget uh, that uh, God has those heavenly agents uh, that preserve us, that care for us, that he sends, that he sent to his people throughout Scripture on those many different kinds of occasions who were the heirs of salvation. But he also sends uh, his angels, um, those elect angels, those watchers, in judging God's enemies. For example, in 2 Chronicles 32, 21, this has to do with the destruction of, of all the Assyrian army that's camped outside of Jerusalem and has conquered every place else that they've gone. And there they are, and they're, and they're bringing reproach against the one true living God. They are profaning his holy name. And uh, we read there, And the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land, and when he was coming to the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels, that is his own sons, slew him there with a sword. But an angel was sent to bring judgment against all of those forces around Jerusalem. Likewise, uh, and again, many times in scripture, but Revelation 8, 6, trumpet judgments are sent by God uses angels to bring those trumpet judgments. Likewise, in Revelation 16, 1, God uses angels to bring vile judgments. The vile judgments. Uh, Paul even states that God's angels come at times uh, almost disguised uh, in ministering to the saints. And because of that, uh, Paul in Hebrews 13, 2 says that we ought to be very hospitable uh, to strangers along the way because um, uh, God sends them as, as his emissaries, as his agents uh, among his people. Hebrews 13, 2, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Specifically, Abraham uh, entertained angels unaware when the three men, one of them being the Son of God, uh, the angel of Jehovah, and the other two being uh, watchers, uh, being angels. The word watcher is not used, but again, uh, if we're thinking in terms of uh, watch, uh, angels being watchers, uh, then they were uh, accompanying the Son of God at that time. Dear ones, this truth that we've been talking about with regard to angels as watchers uh, is for us who trust in Jesus Christ, uh, it is a great encouragement to us that we each one, that we have guardian angels. That's not simply you know, some myth 
uh, or fable. That is a reality, that is a truth, that we have guardian angels that watch over us, that God sends to watch over us. Matthew 18.10 says, Lord Jesus says, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, one of these little ones that believe in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> For I say unto you that in heaven their angels, their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. They have angels that are appointed to guard and to care for them. All who trust in Christ, all who are little ones who believe and trust in Jesus, uh, we are taught here, have watchers that God sends to care for us, to preserve us, and to judge uh, his enemies, as we have already noted. How many times, dear child of God, have our guardian angels preserved and protected us uh, and our children from so many dangers? And it wasn't because they fell asleep that, uh, that uh, we do in, incur trials and tribulations, afflictions, and even sometimes death. It's not because they were sleeping on the job that that happened, but God uh, also sends them uh, uh, at times to to restrain as well, uh, to restrain that which may come upon us, as well as not to restrain uh, things that come upon us for his own holy purposes. But it's very comforting to me, and I pray to you as well, that God loves you and cares for you enough that he sends his own watchers to care for you, uh, to show that kind of, of love, that, that th those are personal beings. Uh, God's presence is certainly with us, wherever we are, because God is omnipresent. But he has personal agents that he has chosen and that he has commissioned, go and care for and watch over that soul that belongs to me. I dare say that even as we worship now, uh, there are guardian angels, there are watchers in our midst, in the midst of the saints, and that's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 why there's not to be disorder, why there is only to be order in, when we come to worship the living God because of the angels, because of the watchers who are in our very midst even as we worship him. They're not omniscient, as God is. God alone is omniscient. They're not omnipresent, as God alone is omnipresent. They are not almighty, uh, they are mighty, but they're not almighty, as God is. Uh, they were created uh, before man was created uh, in creation week uh, in order to serve God. And Satan's fall uh, was shortly after the completion. We don't have a specific indication and reference to that, but it was shortly after uh, the uh, creation of men because on the sixth day of creation when God had created all things uh, God himself said and all was very good so had they fallen before um, uh, creation week ended uh, God could not say uh, and all was very good so this happened the fall of, uh, of Satan happened shortly thereafter in coming uh, to tempt Adam and Eve who had not 
been in the Garden of Eden very long uh, because God had given unto them the command to be fruitful and multiply, and uh, again, there was no conception. So it was probably very shortly thereafter, uh, creation week, that the fall of Satan occurred uh, and uh, rose up in rebellion against uh, the living God. But there were elect angels um, who were confirmed in righteousness and who cannot fall now. Uh, the fallen angels serve Satan. Uh, they're enemies of the living God. Uh, God's elect angels serve him and serve him because they are confirmed in righteousness and holiness. They serve him all the time. Uh, they cannot do anything but serve him. That's their delight. That's their joy is to serve the living God. And that's why in the petition in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, Catechism teaches us that we're to do God's will here upon earth, what we know by way of his commandments, his law to do his will, as the angels in heaven are quick to do his will. And they are complete to do his will. Not partial, not half-heartedly, but wholly to do the will of God. They are not to be worshipped Watchers, angels, are not to be worshipped or prayed to. The Apostle John, in the book of Revelation, learned that lesson twice. Very, It would appear within a very short period of time because he was overwhelmed by what he saw in Revelation 19.10. Uh, he bows down and worships uh, the uh, interpreting angel that's speaking to him. And then again in Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, the same thing. And in that passage, uh, John says, And I, John, saw these things and heard them, and when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Worship God. But notice how the, the angel identifies himself as being a fellow servant with John. Uh, he's not exalting himself uh, uh, as, as if uh, he uh, is something then a fellow servant of the Lord God along with John, but uh, that he is simply doing the will of God. And so don't worship him. He's a creation, just like we are created uh, angels are created as well. They are not to be worshipped to. Uh, they are not to be prayed to. Um, uh, contrary to what uh, the Church of Rome uh, teaches. Contrary to what some other churches may teach. Um, no, they are creatures. No creatures to be prayed to. Uh, only the living God. There is an orderly arrangement of, uh, of authority among the angels. In other words, not... A, there, there's a, a chain of command, basically, even among the angels. Uh, there are archangels, there, there are uh, levels and degrees. There's orderliness, even amongst the angels that are perfect and holy. Because God is a holy God, uh, there's, there's not confusion. There's not everybody doing uh, what they want to do. But uh, basically, uh, there is uh, orderliness, even within uh, um, and amongst the hosts of angels. 
Um, in Ephesians 1, 20 through 21, uh, there it speaks of uh, Jesus being exalted above all principality, power, and might, and dominion, and of every name that is named, not only in the world, but also in that which is to come. So those various... Um, uh, those particular nouns, all principality, power, might, and dominion, are expressing different degrees uh, of, of leadership and rule, uh, not only amongst those in the world, but in the world to come. And so, again, wherever we see God uh, working, he always works through that kind of orderliness uh, in the world, in the family, in the church, in the state, an orderliness, breaking that God-given orderliness and chain of command is in subordination to God himself. And so we need to understand, again, God delights in that kind of order. That's even true amongst the fallen angels in Ephesians 6.12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against, notice, principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Once again, those same descriptive terms of, of the chain of command, even amongst the wicked angels. I know I'm spending a little time on this, but we don't talk very often about uh, the role, the place of angels, and I want to just, uh, again, emphasize that. The watcher and the watchers here are described as holy, or holy ones. Just as God was previously described as holy in verses 8 and 9, so these agents of God, his agents in bringing this judgment against Nebuchadnezzar, uh, are also described to be holy. You see, dear ones, absolute, infinite holiness and moral purity is uniquely an attribute of God alone. Not of angels, not of mankind, even in our perfected state, in glory in heaven. Uh, that belongs, infinite and absolute holiness belongs to God alone. Only he is inherently and absolutely holy. Any creature that has any holiness is a derivative holiness that God has given to that creature, not because that creature is inherently holy. God never acts in an, in an unholy way. And we need to understand that because when we fall into questions when we are going through trials, when we do not understand what God is doing in our lives, why he has done this, God help us by his mercy and his grace to fall back on even in our lack of understanding that he's a holy God. He never makes a mistake. He always does what is holy. And if he always does what is holy, and because holiness is the perfection of his attributes, then he is always good in what he does because it is most good for God to do what is holy, for God to be holy. And so when we get into those situations where we're crying out, God, why, why, why? Let us not embrace unbelief. Let us not embrace uh, incredulity. Let us embrace, rather, 
the fact that God is holy in all that he does. Let us declare his holiness. Hold up his holiness. That's where we go, dear ones, when we don't understand. It's back to the nature and the attributes of God, to his holiness, to his wisdom, to his mercy. Holiness is not, therefore, dear ones, not a bad word. In the world, yeah, holier than thou is a phrase um, that uh, is used. Uh, Any time that we would establish or seek to establish God's standards, uh, the accusation, oh, you're holier than thou because you want to follow God's will, God's commandments. Now, we can be holier than thou by way of being self-righteous uh, in the way we treat others, but it's not wrong uh, to be a holy person or to desire to grow in holiness. That's not wrong. That's not bad. That's being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, who is holy. But let us, Lord, uh, dear ones, let us, let us not allow that word holy to become a bad word by way of, the way, by, by way of, of how we treat um, one another, not in a holy way, not in a loving way, which again, love is always a holy love. Is always a holy love, not an unholy love. Growing in holiness, dear ones, is simply growing in Christ. And if we don't want to be holy, I dare ask, why do we want to go to heaven? Because heaven is a holy place. And if we do want to go to heaven, let us love holiness now. Let us delight in holiness and walking in that holiness before God. Not running from it, but seeking to walk in holiness. So Nebuchadnezzar sees here one watcher or watching angel descend from heaven who orders other watchers. And that's where the plural in verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers in the plural. So the one watcher must have been, by way of chain of command, higher. He orders these other watchers, and these angelic watchers, uh, to cut down this tree. After the great tree falls to the ground, <clears throat> the branches, the leaves, and the fruit are stripped away from the tree. The fowls of the air and the beasts of the field are commanded to flee from the fallen tree in verses 13 through 14. The great tree here is not uprooted so that it cannot return uh, to a tree again, but is rather cut down to a stump with a portion of the tree still exposed and the roots still firmly in the ground. as we see in verse 15. Then we read uh, in this dream, dream that there was a band of iron and brass that is set around the stump, probably like a fence, uh, an enclosure of some kind to protect this tree, this stump, uh, during its um, stage of being a stump, protecting it so that it would, again, 
uh, be brought a, to be a tree once again. Beginning at uh, Daniel chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, there's a shift away from the description of this great tree uh, to the personalizing of who the great tree represents. When it says, it's been speaking of this uh, tree as a tree, basically, in the dream uh, up until this point. But in verse 15, uh, we we begin to see a personalizing of this, a human personalizing of this. And where it says, And let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's. And let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. So here we see, uh, moving from the tree... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's speaking here, moving away from the, the tree in the dream. Now he's moving on uh, to describe, basically he's quoting what the watcher himself is saying. So this portion of the dream is, is narrating what the watcher, the angelic watcher was saying. And so the angelic watcher is the one who's using this language that Nebuchadnezzar is, is using at this point uh, to indicate it's moving away from the tree to something very personal, somewhat human. If God, and this may not so much be a question for us who hold the doctrine of God's sovereignty very near and dear to our hearts, but I simply ask the question, if God is not sovereign over man's will, how do we explain Nebuchadnezzar's heart, his understanding being turned from a man's heart to a beast's heart? Did Nebuchadnezzar choose? Did he want to have this done to him? Or was it sovereignly done to him by a sovereign God? Dear ones, likewise, the heart of mankind is in rebellion against God and is dead in trespasses and sins due to the fall of man in Adam and due to our own personal sins. For all who come to Jesus Christ in faith, God must first change the heart. Not because man wants his heart changed, but because God sovereignly works to change his heart. And to give him a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. To bring life where there is only death in his soul. To give him a new heart before he will ever come in faith to Jesus Christ. As John 1.13 says, speaking of those who come to Christ, which were born, that is, born again, which were born or born again, not of blood, not due to some uh, familial relationship to other people, that they were not born uh, again due to their relationship to someone else, uh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, that is, not of their own volition, were they born of God, nor of the will of man, not the will of some minister administering some kind of a sacrament in bringing them to life, 
but of God, God's will. Not of man's will, but of God's will are we born again. Man's will, dear ones, is not sovereign. God's will is sovereign. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it was really the reverse process. From the heart of a man to the heart of a beast. But in salvation, it's the heart of a beast to the heart of a new man. That God changes our hearts. Moreover, dear ones, by this truth of God's sovereignty and working upon the will of man and not our sovereignty of our will over God's will, but rather this truth and by this truth we learn that it is not our job, it's not our job to change anyone's heart. It's God's job to change a heart. It is our part to be a means that God uses through our words and through our deeds to bring change to someone's heart, but it's God that changes the heart. And so let us not take upon ourselves and think and act as though we're going to change somebody's heart. That is to usurp the authority and the place of sovereign God. We're not sovereign. God is almighty. How long was Nebuchadnezzar in this state of insanity? We read, and let seven times. Uh, that's a literal translation of the Aramaic word used there. Let seven times pass over him in Daniel 4.16. This was most likely a reference to seven years. Um, also in Daniel uh, 7.25 and in 12.7 it uses uh, the uh, word times uh, to refer to years uh, a time times and half a time a time is one year times is two years one plus two is three and half of a time is a half of a year so three and a half years and uh, that is carried through in the book of Revelation as well and when we get to that prophecy in Daniel 7.25, we'll spend some more time talking about that um, uh, length of time. But uh, I think for the time being, that's sufficient to say that it's probably referring to seven years, seven times that Nebuchadnezzar was in that state of insanity. Lastly, and very briefly, the king heard the purpose of the dream in verses 17 through 18. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. The watcher here, the angelic watcher, explains that the purpose and intent of this dream and its fulfillment is given in order to teach proud Nebuchadnezzar, haughty Nebuchadnezzar, 
that is not he that reigns and sustains his own dominion, but it is the Most High God that is absolutely sovereign over all kingdoms, his included. And the Lord would not only give him a, a dream to make that point that God is sovereign and that he's simply a proud and haughty ruler. It's not only for that reason, though that is the specific and stated purpose uh, in verse 17, but also uh, I believe that the Lord would have us to understand uh, here as well that there is a mercy attached to God giving to Nebuchadnezzar this dream to give him time to repent, to give him time to see where his pride and his arrogance will lead him. He didn't repent. He didn't heed what the Lord gave him by way of revelation, even though he acknowledged that Daniel had properly interpreted the dream and told him exactly what God was going to do to him. He wasn't humbled by it. If he was, it was very short-lived because he soon forgot. Because as we go through this chapter, Daniel 4, we see again that he in pride speaks of his glory. And at that point, God takes away his mind, uh, his sanity, and gives to him that beastly insanity. You know, all rulers need to hear this truth. It's God that reigns. Whether it's rulers in the family, whether it's rulers in the church, or whether it's rulers in the state. We who have rule uh, in uh, family, church, or state, we are to be, each of us, in those capacities, we are to be God's ministers, God's servants, to the good of those over whom we rule. Not with an absolute authoritarianism, but ruling in love, ruling in charity, ruling by in righteousness, establishing those biblical sound guidelines, setting an example of love and charity and piety for those who are ruled to be able to follow in the footsteps of those who rule. And I say to you, and write this down in your minds upon paper, those who have not learned to obey and to submit to authority presently are entirely unfit to govern others. Until we learn how to rule our own lives, under the rulership and lordship of Jesus Christ, we are not fit to be able to teach others how to submit if we cannot ourselves submit to the living God. And so, again, doesn't mean that someone who doesn't mean that uh, uh, an unbelieving father uh, is, does not yet have authority in his home, but it is, again, an indication he's really not fit to rule. Uh, likewise, unbelieving ministers or church leaders um, or unbelieving uh, rulers in the state 
Until we learn how to submit to the living God, we're really not fit to be able to teach others and show others how they are to submit to the living God and to us if we are servants of the living God. The king's wise men were brought to, to, uh, to see by way of their coming in and being unable to interpret the dream that their wisdom again was, was a failure in interpreting the dream. In fact, they didn't even presume to take a stab, it appears, at interpreting the dream, probably knowing that Daniel was going to come behind them and uh, provide the true interpretation. Uh, they did not want to bear the consequences of having interpreted a dream falsely to the king, and so they don't even attempt to interpret his dream, it appears. The king himself declares that Daniel was alone able to interpret the dream because the spirit of the holy God was in him. As I close, dear ones, uh, just to leave this with you. We often forget that uh, the truths that God mercifully has taught us in the past as he did Nebuchadnezzar through this dream have a purpose and a reason that we not continue in those same unlearned lessons, that we not repeat our failures and our sins. God was merciful to be able to show to Nebuchadnezzar this dream because it gave him, even though God knew, obviously, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was not going to repent and did not give him a heart to repent, nevertheless, um, it was given to show that there was time to repent of his haughtiness and his, and his pride and to submit himself uh, under the hand of the one true living God and to do away with all of his idolatry, but he, he did not use it that way. In our lives, it may not be a dream that God has given to us to teach us, but it may be through his word uh, that he is telling us, he's teaching us, he's instructing us not to continue in a path that we are going down. Through our own study of the Word of God, through our parents, uh, through the preaching and teaching of his Word from this pulpit, and through the hard lessons that we learn in the school of Christ, that God is telling us God is mercifully reaching out to us. God is saying to us, don't continue down that path because there are going to be certain consequences, as with Nebuchadnezzar, if we do not turn to the mercy of God, seek his forgiveness. Because we, dear ones, are forgetful or because we never learned the lesson that Jesus designed that we learn from what we have experienced in our lives, due to our own stubbornness in our lives, and we have all been there, we have all done it. We can go back each one in our lives and see how we have been stubborn and rebellious and what God was telling us, and we did not heed what he was telling us. God is a merciful God. If we will cry out to him, 
even though we have failed, if we will cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, beating our chest. God is merciful. He will forgive. He will set us on the right path. He will help us and instruct us in the way that we should go. Let us, dear ones, therefore, all seek to learn the easy way. Let us all learn by the hearing of God's word, by the godly example that is set before us in others, or by the ungodly example, to shun that by the example of others, that we don't want to walk that way. We don't want to walk that path. Rather than having to learn ourselves time and time again by the hard way, by the serious way, by the difficult way, severe way that God brings into our lives because we won't learn the easy way. But even when we have had to learn the hard way, I want to assure you God is merciful and he will forgive if you flee to him. If you flee and find shelter under his wings, he will again abate his wrath, his anger against us. He will draw us unto himself and he will welcome us in Jesus Christ. We are who trust in Christ alone. We are his beloved children. And we will, dear ones, learning, whether by the hard way or learning from the easy way, let us never despise how God has taught us. Let us never despise our God who has taught us because it was his purpose to show us that we're not sovereign. We don't rule and control our lives. It is God who is sovereign. And let us be thankful that he taught us. Nevertheless, even as difficult as it was, he taught us by his grace and let us praise him for it. Amen. Stand with me in prayer. Father in heaven, glory be to thy holy name. Thou art a God of holiness. Lord, we delight in thee. It is beautiful to us who are the children of God. Draw us, our Lord, into that holiness. Draw us, our Lord, into the beauty of it. For, Father, that's the beauty of heaven, that thou art a holy God. And we are called to be holy ones, called to be thy saints, which is and which means holy ones. We pray, Father, that, that thou would take thy word even today Make us knowledgeable of it, but make us wise to, to heed it, to listen to it, to apply it to our lives. May all the experiences, Lord, that, that we have faced in our lives be used of thee to teach us, to train us. May we, our God, be good students. And help us, our Lord, as we grow, that we would not have to learn the hard way, that we may increasingly learn the easy way through the words that thou dost speak unto us in thy word, through the words 
of those who are faithful in teaching and preaching thy truth through the words of those who are in authority over us, whether in the home or the church. We pray our Lord, teach us, let us rejoice that thou hast taught us and that we have learned, even if it was the hard way. We ask our God, in Jesus' name, amen.